<clears throat> some gruesome uh, statistics to begin with, if I may. Uh, the free state of Congo lost 50% of its population at the beginning of the 20th century, about 8 to 10 million in a genocide. 1914 to 18, the First World War, 30 to 40 million died. 1917 to 1922, the Russian Civil War, 7 to 9 million died. Uh, 1924 to 1953, the reign of Stalin, 20 million died for not adhering to his rule. In many in the gulags of Siberia or on their way, the road of bones being the obvious. 1939 to 1945, Second World War, 60 to 65 million died. 60% of the dead were the civilian population rather than the armed forces. Those five events are commonly known as the Big Five of the 20th century. Never there has there been a time in history where the death toll has been so great. Just think of those lives for a moment. Uh, 50 million in Russia alone. Think of all the pain, not only, of course, in those who were dying, who went through dying, who were bombed, civilians and so on, but also within the loss of families and communities. Think of the scale of these conflicts. Think of the magnitude of horror and loss. And now try and put that into a song. I mean, how could you possibly express the pain and sum up the emotions of, of such a global experience of terror and loss? I mean, what kind of tune, what kind of tune would go with your song? Well, that is what we've had just read in Psalm 2. I mean, it's a song, yeah? It's a song that tells us uh, the, of the biggest global conflict of all history. And the extraordinary thing is, is that everyone's involved. When this was written, of course, specifically it was referring to the superpowers of the time, the, the Assyrians and the Egyptians. But it seems that in this conflict, uniquely, every one of us is involved, conspiring and plotting, taking their stand, gathered, united against the Lord and his anointed. I, I, I wonder, do you, do you think things have changed? Oh, David is the writer of this song, but he describes the hearts and the minds of the world in his time. He writes two and a half thousand or so years ago, but could it apply today? Well, let's see. First point, therefore, verse 1 to 3, they take their stand against God. Oh, we see the nations and the peoples. Look down at verse 1, you'll see them there. The kings and the rulers of verse 2, they take their stand because why? Well, they want freedom, verse 3 shows us. Let us break their chains, they say. Let us throw off their fetters. They want freedom from God as, as king. And, and you can see how they view God's rule. They depict serving him as being a slave in chains. Oh, you know, if you press your friends a little bit, do you think they would go down similar lines today? Think what, what the people here are asking for. They want freedom. They want freedom away from God's rule. Freedom away from God's power. Oh, they ignore that God's power is a sustaining power, of course. So in a sense, what they're saying, I love it. One scholar said this. He said, essentially, people were saying, here that I want to be free of oxygen and the tyranny of breathing. It's essentially what they're saying. 
Because God is the giver of all good things. The problem is that for so many that we know, they've divided the authority of God. And they pick and choose how they want him to rule and to display his power. So some might go, oh yeah, we've got what I have might concede that God may have created, therefore accept his authority in creation and his provision of so many good things that I enjoy. But that is as far as it goes, thank you very much. But with respect to authority over us? Well, that might be acceptable. Many would sort of say, oh, if, you, if you've kind of jumped into that club, you know, if you become a Christian, you know, that's kind of fine. You've subjected yourself to God's rule and authority. But can God have authority over all humanity in creation? Oh, surely God must respect, you know, different cultures and religious beliefs. Surely they can be free from his rule. You look down at verse 3. The peoples of verse 3 want to express themselves. They want freedom. They want liberty. They seem so legitimate, don't they, in our kind of culture? Oh, they don't want to think of that. That's their choice. Leave them be. You know, they, they, they just, they don't want the, our God. And by contrast, actually, you look at this psalm and in today's thinking, it's God who seems so demanding, so oppressive. Chains and fetters, of course, are the symbols of oppression, aren't they? Think back, slave trade and so on. You know, fetters were the manacles that would bind a person's wrists and ankles. And therefore, these images suggest God is the uh, tyrannical here, isn't he? He's the one that's out of touch. He's the one that's culturally irrelevant. He's the oppressor here. Well, just to get it a little bit closer to home, we sometimes see this, in a sense, pulling against God, pushing against God's authority and rule within the church. In many churches across our land, if the Bible seems unpalatable, there are vast swathes of the church in this country that feel at liberty to dismiss the teaching of God as they wish. Oh, I don't like that, but let's overlook that, shall we? They would, they would liberalise, as we would say. They would liberalise as they take their stand against God and his anointed. I, 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 let's press it home a little closer, shall we? I, I want us to ask the question to ourselves, are we any different? See, the brilliance of this psalm, which really acts as an introduction alongside Psalm 1 to the whole book of the Psalms, its, brilliant li- its brilliance lies in the fact that it speaks at a point in history But its message echoes down through all ages. Let us break our chains, we might say, and throw off our fetters, our shackles. I wonder if we've heard those words before. Perhaps we have even in our own hearts. Because the quest for freedom and self-rule is in every one of us to a degree. However much we know of God's kindness and his good rule in and through his word, not a day goes by when we don't consider pulling against those chains and those shackles. This, of course, resonates, doesn't it, with our times, with all the suspicion of authority. Everywhere we look, just think political authority. The question, I guess, 
on so many shows at the moment on television is, can we trust anyone to run this country? So should we just break off our kind of our chains from their authority? It seems so attractive, doesn't it? But what do we actually think about freedom? Do we want a completely free society? Freedom is a confused notion. Because we all differ in where we think freedom should begin and end. I mean, should politicians have the freedom to determine the future of our country after a referendum? Or should we have another one? I'm not going to get into the debate, by the way. I'm not saying. Do we really want complete freedom in this country? Do we want uh, complete freedom from God? Throwing off those shackles, those chains. Well, think about those chains for a moment. Because the chains of God say, love your neighbour as yourself. The the shackles of God uh, ask us to be faithful and selfless and giving and sacrificial. And they hold us back from lust and anger and envy. And you have to say, is that oppressive? Oh, we love to shout, yeah, freedom, pulling against those kind of chains and those shackles. Freedom sounds so attractive. And in in verse 3, that describes this kind of, this global conspiracy against God. And we're all playing a part to propagate it. Every one of us. We all love to pull a little bit against those chains, don't we? And how does God react? This leads us to our next verses and our second point. Armies and peoples and nations literally rage against God. The original word there for conspire is, is that rage word. That is, we're, we're likened to a sea. That's where the nature of that word comes from. Likened to a sea. Always moving, restless, always an undercurrent of rebellion to break off from the chains of God's rule. And yes, I know in our middle class kind of indifference, we mustn't be deceived to thinking that we're not trying to break away from God's rule. You know, you may not rage, you know, all of us are controlled in those ways. We don't rage like stormy seas, certainly in a presenting way. But there can be very dangerous undercurrents. We still cry out for freedom, don't we? We just do it in a more pleasant accent and with a gentler tone. God's reaction? Well, the whole Assyrian and Egyptian armies are lined up to take their stand against God in the context here. It's huge. It's terrifying. Human opposition would probably faint and cower and worry at the prospect. And you kind of go, do you expect that of God? All the nation, all are conspiring against him. How do you expect God to react? Oh, oh, backing into a corner. With all that opposition to, and threat to his rule, surely a little bit of concern, a few sleepless nights. Look how God reacts to the most powerful, global, mighty stand against him. Verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And that's our second point. God scoffs at them and installs his king. 
Certainly you see in God huge confidence, don't you? But that emotion and and reaction of laughter in the face of the world's opposition can only be understood if you understand the God of great power. How often do we minimise the nature of God? I remember when our our boys were young and that that stage of development. uh, There's a stage where boys quite clearly become boys as testosterone kind of fuels going to go goes through their veins they become quite aggressive it's just part of growing up as being a boy and if things didn't go their way all that all that testosterone coursing through their veins uh, little boys often just lash out they can't control it i remember a number of occasions where you just have to stand there as a parent and you kind of you hold their shoulders and you've got these little boys go, I haven't got my way, no ice cream, no, you know, and so you just hold their shoulders. It sometimes could take a few minutes to realise, for them to realise, how pointless it was to fight, and also how stupid they looked. And you, you do try very hard as a parent in those moments not to laugh, because that might exacerbate the situa- situation. But a number of occasions I did laugh. Because they look ridiculous and they learn from it. They feel the shame of what they've done and they, they just see how stupid they've been. We see something of that here. The peoples and the nations with all their might. They're like a, toddler, a tiny toddler lashing out against God. They're nothing before him. And the response shows how ridiculous the stand is. The the laughing, though, and the scoffing. Don't look at that and go, oh, that's really demeaning, is it? No, the stand is. The stand against the Lord is demeaning. The image of God laughing just shows the futility of the peoples and the nations plotting to break free from God. And it shows that they provide no threat God is not being a bully laughing here. He's not just kind of flexing his muscles. What we see here is this unusual blend of someone having all the overwhelming sovereign might. But also being completely right. And so what is God's response? Verse 5 and 6. He rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. God responds, as good parents ought to, by rebuking. His anger is right, his wrath is terrifying, yet it is just as well. I'd love to ignore verse 5, wouldn't you? You imagine me in my shoes right now. It'd be so much easier to stand here. But that is the reality of God. If you stand against him, it's terrifying. And I just can't water that down. It does seem strange to us, though, doesn't it, in a democracy, that, that right anger and terrifying wrath are worked out and then in a coronation. Do you see that? Kings are always a significant part of God's response to his rebellious uh, people and rebellious people against his people throughout the Bible. That initially worked through the line of Israel's kings. It didn't involve a crown to begin with. It involved the anointing of oil. Hence the anointed one of verse 2. 
But kings were appointed, with God's appointed means, uh, to quash rebellion. As time went on, though, more and more uh, people realised that there would be another king. Another anointed one who would be, in a sense, the final and the, the real answer to all this plotting and rebellion. And, and here's where we introduce him. And I want to avoid the obvious underscore answer, but it is there. And it's our third point. It's Jesus, the judge of all. See, the term anointed one is, often, is also translated in, in the Hebrew as Messiah. Uh, in the Greek, it's Christ, which helps us uh, make a bit more sense of verse 7, doesn't it? If you look, I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son today, I have become your father. You see, the anointed one is the son. And the king who will perfectly deal with the rebellious conspiracy of the world is the son of God. And this verse shows us that the son, the king, that that co-equal there has equal authority to the father they're inseparable as their family unit that is if you know one you know the other you just can't pick and choose in that way but look at the power bestowed on the king in verse 8 ask me and i will make the, the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth your possession look at the eternal kind of reaching power of the king the scope is huge now today, that you know, a population of uh, X billion in this world and 149 million square kilometres of land area, that's to the ends of the earth. Imagine if your dad sort of you know, came up to you at Christmas and said, oh yeah, here, here, here's your Christmas present. You get the rule over 7 billion people and over all the area of the world. Well, we're told here that the king, God's son, owns... And has authority over everything. And everyone. Now I want you to just cast your mind. It will be a few centuries forward from when this was originally written. uh, But obviously a number of centuries back for us. Uh, Imagine singing this psalm. This song. Second century BC. Okay. Second century BC. Romans are gathering steam. The Roman Empire is you know, blossoming, it's, it's becoming huge. Uh, they're ruling and they're governing over Israel, God's people. Can you imagine the Roman soldiers and, uh, and the Roman governors of the time you know, mocking people? They might even sing this back to them in a mocking tone. Where's your king? Where's the anointed one? Where's your ruler? Who's ruling now? It's interesting that when the apostles were teaching people about Jesus after his death and resurrection, do you know which passage they used more than anywhere else as they preached their sermons through the book of Acts? Psalm 2. Particularly these verses, actually. Because they were showing the peoples and the nations God's response to rebellion in his world. That is, he's installed a king, but the Romans crucified him. So what's going on there? Paul in Acts 13 tells the Jews gathered and the Romans gathered there that Jesus is the king that they've been waiting for. And unashamedly that Jesus has been unjustly killed. He then goes on to explain. Let me read, if I may, Acts 13 verses 29 through 33. 
When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Where is this king? He is real and he has died on a cross. But Paul is showing us that in that word today, the day of coronation, that is the day that Jesus is raised from the dead. He was always the son of God. He's always been the begotten son of the father. But when he comes and takes on human flesh, lives and then is def- uh, then dies on a cross and raises defeating death. That was the day he was crowned and anointed as king. The one they've been waiting for. So you see, Jesus is the one speaking in verses 7 to 9 of Psalm 2. He's the anointed of verse 2. He's the one that owns the whole world and all of us. But look at what Jesus is appointed to do in verse 9 as the risen king. You will break them with the rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And yeah, you might go back to Acts 13 and go, hey, hang about, Paul said that was good news. That sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Why would he do that? Because Jesus here is depicted as the brutal judge And the comparison could not be any more stark. He has a rod of iron, the iron scepter. We're just pieces of pottery. It's carnage, the picture presented, isn't it? There's no competition. He will smash. Jesus will obliterate. And it seems really disturbing, doesn't it? The rod of iron. We use that phrase, don't we? Uh, you leave with a kind of rod of iron. You speak like that. and it, We use that to describe brutal dictators. It's interesting that uh, that phrase actually finds its root in baby Jesus, meek and mild. Maybe, just maybe, this might begin to redefine your view of Jesus. Because the crushing reality of this psalm is that if we align ourselves with the peoples and the nations of verse 1, Jesus will destroy. Which is so offensive, isn't it, to our culture? But of course, we have an option. that We don't need to be stubborn. Look at this passage and understand where this puts you in relation with Jesus. And don't think you're alone. When we get to verse 9, we're we're all in this together. This is an indictment on all of our lives and how we all live in rebellion against Jesus and his rule, despite all our promises to serve and to follow him if we're Christians. Can we really even think of Jesus in this way? It's very hard, isn't it? Of Jesus the destroyer. And how can this be good news as Paul says it is in Acts 13? Well, it can be. As we see in the last three verses. 
Now, you will have noticed, I hope, as we've gone through this, I've tried to include uh, just a few reasons to not take a stand against God in that his rule and authority are good and generous and life-giving. And and I've kind of only done that to to help us not walk out because there's been none of that really to this stage. I I wonder if you see God's argument here within Psalm 2. It's not the way that generally any of us would, you know, do an appraisal of a colleague at work or anything like that. Because uh, essentially, God's way of persuasion is, stand against me and I will crush you. I'd love to see you start kind of an assessment with a, kind of a colleague like that. Stand against me, I will crush you. Well, that's God's logic here. And therefore, he says, are in response, be wise. Be warned. I know it's not necessarily the way we might do things, but it's a persuasive argument, isn't it? And it's also why it's good news. Because there is an option. There's something that can be done. Because the smashing and the judgment hasn't happened yet. And so last point. Last stanza within the song. Verse if you like. Point four. Therefore be wise. Serve God. And take refuge in Jesus. Let me just remind us again of verse uh, 10 through to verse 12. Therefore you kings be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. (coughs) Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead you to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Oh, it is good news. Because God has provided a rescue plan in his love for each one of us. Now you can ignore him and you'll be crushed. Or you can listen with wisdom and heed the warning. Well, how can we be wise? Verse 11, serve God with fear and rejoice. Yes, in those chains. But rejoice. And because God and because a king has been installed, you will also need to make up with the king. You will need to, as it says, it's a strange phrase, isn't it? Kiss the son. Honour, love, cherish, be friends with Jesus. And you will want to be his friend because being his enemy, provoking his righteous anger is futile. And verse 11 reminds us of the consequences. (coughs) The element of time, though, is interesting, isn't it, in verse 11? His wrath will flare up in a moment. And I think that should warn us. Uh, It should encourage us. There should be an urgency in all of us. We don't know the time when we will be called and when Jesus comes to judge, but we do know time will have run out at that moment. And so what can we do? Verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. The only way, the only place, if you like, to hide from the son who comes to judge in terrifying wrath, the only place to hide from the one with all power who will smash and obliterate anything that stands in his way 
The only place to hide from the sun is in the sun. Because if we take refuge in Jesus, there we find blessing. And as we saw last week in Psalm 1, blessing is, is the, the road, the joy and the happiness of walking with God. Take refuge in Jesus. Of course, many of us have. But I hope this also provides an urgency for all of us to warn our friends and those we meet. I think it's so hard, isn't it, for us to to go out to meet people, to look at people, to view them in the way that Psalm 1 and 2 has shown us. Chaff uh, will be obliterated by Jesus, the judge. Do we really view our neighbours like that? Do we love them enough to warn them of that? What about the colleague you sit next to? Do you see them as chaff? Psalm 1? That will be, if they've taken a stand against Jesus, obliterated. Do you love them enough to warn them? To commend them to the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one? I wonder if you're praying for your colleagues, your your neighbours, those you go to the gym with. Because they need to know about Jesus because it is only in him that we find refuge. Please pray for them. Let's pray. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. As we've seen uh, over these last two weeks, we, we can know blessing. We can know that happiness, that joy day by day as we delight in, the, in your word, who, as we meditate on it, as we live by it. But we can also know that blessing as we take refuge in the Son. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, may these two things be the, in a sense, the foundations of our lives in this life. Before we meet you face to face. Where we will be honouring the Son day by day by day. And forevermore. Amen.